what I had always thought of and maligned as a mindless and stupid thing to do to an infant was actually something that would impact a man for the rest of his life. I'm Luke Story. I'm Christine Loria. I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I'm Angie Check. I am Dr. Aaron Eugen McMorrow. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Bliss Young. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm Kyle Kingsbury. I'm Lily Nichols. I'm Mark Groves. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Jesse Golden. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm Marin Green. I'm Kelly Brogan, MD. Hi, this is Kimberly Ann Johnson. Je m'appelle Chris Safris, et c'est le podcast du Chidicolo Holistique. Hello, I'm Paul Check, and this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. Enjoy. George Ann Chapin's here. She's the executive director at Intact America. And if you liked my conversation with Brendan Murata, which was back in February, episode 108, you're going to love this. We're going to go even further into this penis business. More conversation around circumcision, the most common procedure. Let's call it what it is. It's a surgery, most common surgery in the United States. George Ann is a breath of fresh air, her depth of knowledge on the topic as an educator and as an advocate is sort of unmatched. Georgianne is just sensational. You're going to really, really love this episode. We've got a couple sponsors, of course. Fool of Fertility, best prenatal vitamin on the market. You want to make sure your prenatals have enough vitamin D, enough choline, enough folate, not folic acid, folate. I've done plenty of social media posts on that whole thing. And it's a big topic in my upcoming course, which, geez, we're going to be enrolling in the waitlist a couple weeks after this episode. So stay tuned for the Born Free Method. Sarah Rosser, one of the farm midwives, and I have this incredible collaboration going on there. You don't want to miss out on that. It is a hell of a journey you can take with us. And the course itself you know, it covers a wide variety of topics, basically everything you could possibly want to know about pregnancy and postpartum, but also you get with your purchase, you're going to get weekly masterminds with me or Sarah. We alternate every other week for 12 months. There's nothing like this out there. So folate, folic acid, get the best prenatal vitamin on the market. If you're on your fertility journey, they also have men's virility vitamins, fullwellfertility.com. The code is beloved10 if you want to save some moolah. Moolah. Who doesn't like to save some moolah? You're going to be saving lots of moolah if you go to my website, belovedholistics.com slash shop. You'll find all of my favorite brands, best in class for every single category of every lifestyle intervention that I use in my my own life for my family, but also with my clients. You also find BirthFit there. BirthFit's one of our other sponsors. BirthFit is a pregnancy and postpartum specific lifestyle training program. They're going to give you strength and conditioning insights, but it's really keeping a very, very careful attunement to your nervous system. There's not a lot of personal trainers out there that know how to work with pregnancy and postpartum. Let's just face it. And BirthFit fortunately is out there. They've got an immense array of incredible online courses. If you go and join their B community, which is a community by women for women, it's the convergence of education, community, and accountability all in one place. You'll get access to all of their courses. They gave me access to their BirthFit Basics postpartum course 
And it's just awesome. There's instructional videos. It just gives you this very, very nice rundown from breath work to stretching to some physical activity. If you're in the postpartum period, go to birthfit.com and you can save 20% on their postpartum course right now if you use code BELOVED. We've also got Organifi. Organifi has this really has a whole bunch of products and they're all non-GMO. They're all USDA organic. They're all glyphosate free. They're all gluten-free. It's like everything you would want in your additional nutritional supplements, if you want to call it that. I mean, these are really whole food additions to your day. They have this really, really great product called Balance. And it's a very dynamic five-strain blend. It's got spore-based probiotics, highly potent, highly resilient, lots of bacillus subtilis, bacillus coagulans, lactobacillus, saccharomyces. If you've ever done a stool analysis, there's a lot of the beneficial bacteria that we're lacking. And you can take these once per day in order to help rebalance that. I'm currently in my training at the Institute for Functional Medicine, and this is like where it's at. When in doubt, go to the gut. So you're going to get a ton of probiotics. There's a whole bunch of other ingredients mixed in that will just help you digest your food better, help you rebalance the flora, which is going to optimize nutrient intake, heal your gut, heal your autoimmune conditions. Go to Organifi.com slash beloved and you'll save 20% on their balance. While you're there, get some green juice, get some red juice, get some gold latte, stack up that medicine cabinet (laughs) with some whole foods from Organifi. And last but not least, Bioptimizers. Bioptimizers makes a wide variety of products. One product that I'm finding that I'm recommending more than any is their magnesium breakthrough, seven distinct types of magnesium. I just had a client come to me and they've been taking like 1,200 milligrams of magnesium and now they're getting the bloating and they're getting the diarrhea. And yes, magnesium glycinate doesn't cause that. At a high enough dose, you're going to get some gut issues with any type of magnesium. So it could be that that client isn't absorbing or able to utilize magnesium glycate at that high dose, or maybe they're just not able to absorb that much magnesium. So if you mix up the types of magnesium, you're going to find that you don't need as high of a dose. You're still going to get the sleep benefits. You're still going to get the benefits for your restless leg. When you're pregnant, you're especially deficient in magnesium for a variety of reasons, which I won't get into. But most of you, if you're pregnant and you're postpartum, or if, you know, if you're early in your fertility journey, magnesium supplementation is probably something that you need because we used to get it through diet because we were eating lots of organ meats and bone marrow and bone broth and those types of things. And we're not eating as much of that from, from really well-raised cows. So go to Bioptimizers, get their magnesium breakthrough, seven types of magnesium. You're going to feel better. You're going to sleep better. You're going to wake up feeling more refreshed. If you go to bioptimizers.com slash holistic OBGYN or use code BELOVED, you'll save 10% on your purchase. I love all four of these companies and I know you will too. The reason we have sponsors is it's very expensive to have a podcast like this and I want to make sure that I'm aligned with brands that I, I am fully invested in. And because I use them myself, I've experimented with every one of, almost every one of their products. Bioptimizers has quite a few, as does Organifi, but I've used all of Full Wells. I've used most of the other brands, and I only recommend those those products that, I, that I've mentioned here on the show. So support them. It helps us keep the show running. Also, if something in this episode touches you, share it with your friends. You know, get these conversations out there. There's a lot of people with questions about circumcision, and George Ann Chapin is the one who is going to help you figure this out. And then, oh, last, of course, if you haven't left a five-star review, please do. Believe it or not, it actually means more than you know to leave that 15-second review or just hit five stars. You don't even have to write anything. It really, really means a lot to me. It lets me know you're listening. It lets me know I'm doing something right. 
And, you know, the past interviews we've done, gosh, the last couple, Hamilton Souther, Erica Harper, Tracy Vogel, Stu Fishman, these are important conversations. And no less, Georgian Chapin here is on the show to compliment the work of Brenda Murata. So share these episodes, support our sponsors, leave a five-star review. I've chattered enough. Let's get into this conversation. You're going to love this one with Georgian Chapin of Intact America. Georgian, welcome to the Holistic OBGYN podcast. I have a contemporary of yours, Brendan Murata. His episode will have aired by the time this one is released. Brendan has a background in the arts and filmmaking, and he's also a great writer. So he gave a really interesting perspective on the topic of circumcision. You and I are going to go even further with that. You've already spilled some incredible cans of beans in our pre-recording chat. So tell everybody, what's your background? I know you've got a long history as a social activist, but tell me your background. How did you come to circumcision? Well, first, Nathan, let me thank you for having me on your program. I'm really thrilled. I've listened to some of your episodes and I feel honored to be among people you've interviewed and your great shows. My pleasure. (laughs) I am a 70-year-old woman, a mother of one son who is now 42. And I'm the daughter of uh, social activists, civil rights activists back in the 60s, anti-war activists, and grew up with a very keenly attuned sense of social justice, or let's say social injustice. And I've been interested in related issues my whole life. I got interested in the issue of circumcision very early on. I had a brother who was born when I was almost 11, and he had a circumcision-related complication, which nobody identified as such. I remember the trauma. I don't remember understanding exactly what had caused it. And then as time went on, I have an undergraduate degree in anthropology. And then I went to graduate school at the School of Public Health at Columbia University. And that was a time in the 70s when people were talking about female genital mutilation. Sure. And I remember my feminist activist friends who were teaching in the School of Public Health, teaching in social sciences, being appropriately horrified about girls getting their genitals cut. And I made a casual comment. I said, well, we do that to boys. And if you're ever in any doubt about striking a nerve, (laughs) measure the passion with which you get shut down. And you know, you're hitting a pain point whenever you pluck the right string. Yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, I got lectured by people who told me how smart they were and how completely stupid I was that I would ever equate the two. And I just said, look, you're cutting the healthy genitals of a child who can't consent. There's nothing wrong with the child. It's the same. So that argument, you know, continues to be played out. I don't go a week without somebody telling me that female genital cutting is worse than male genital cutting. And you can go into a lot of reasons why. You know, there are nuances. Female genital cutting is not one simple sure. procedure. It can vary. But Your career path seems to be very similar to mine, bringing up things around natural birth, undisturbed mm-hmm. birth, really leaning into somebody like Michelle O'Don's work, who was not an OBGYN, but a general surgeon. And the conjecturing around the curiosities around, could we do this better? That really is not, it's an inflammatory thing to do in the academic setting, especially in the seventies, I imagine. So how dare you, how dare you think you know more? Right, right. Right. Michelle Adant has been a supporter of the, we call it the intactivist movement. It's a word that comes from intact, as in the whole intact body and activist, but we could say the anti-circumcision movement. Yeah. So he's been 
very eloquent in that space. It's true that there was a context for this in taking back, well, women did it very well, you know, taking back their bodies, right? That was our bodies ourselves. But unfortunately, despite opportunities to do differently, they really abdicated on the issue of male circumcision. And here they were, the literal custodians of helpless baby boys. And they said, you know, circumcision was, we're not going to deal with that. It's not a women's issue. Well, of course, it's a women's issue. That's like saying, you know, having your child paddled in school is not a mother's issue. It's it's everybody's issue, everybody's right? It's society's issue. This is right. a question for all of us. Yeah. So I got interested in this deeper and I would have this conversation for years before I actually did anything about it. And in 1998, my son was 18 years old. We were on a road trip and kind of out of the blue, a conversation had happened the day before at a family gathering. And when we were heading back to New York, he thanked me, said, I never thanked you and dad for not having me circumcised. Mm. And I want to thank you. And he was driving, or I would have probably run off the road. It hit me so powerfully that what I had always thought of and maligned as a mindless and stupid thing to do to an infant was actually something that would impact a man for the rest of his life. And I had accumulated knowledge about that over you know, my adult life, but I had never really put it together. And when he said that, I became an activist, like that minute. And then shortly after that, I just happened coincidentally, or maybe the gods were on my side. I don't know. I happened to go to law school mid-career. I had been running a Medicaid managed care plan that helped to start it up and run it in New York State. It was a nonprofit. We served low-income people. And I just needed to do something different, but I love my job. So I thought, well, let me just go to law school and see what I can learn there. <laughs> and that became a voyage, really, in my work against male child genital cutting, which is the most neutral term and revealing term you can use to describe what we call circumcision. And I wrote some papers about it. And then I met people who were working in that movement that I had been unaware of until I started actually researching the topic kind of academically. And I met Marilyn Milos, who was founder of the movement. She's an RN. She founded an organization called No Cirque, has a longer name. Eventually it became something called Genital Autonomy. And she's now part of Intact America, which is the organization I ended up founding in 2008 with the help of, I'd say, a couple dozen people who had been doing this work for a couple of decades. Yeah. And with the funding from a private donor, a guy who had one son, one daughter, and he was a businessman from Texas. And he and his wife were asked when she was pregnant with their son, well, you're going to circumcise him, right? If it's a boy, you're going to circumcise him, right? And he had never thought about it. And he just said, well, I don't know. Why would we do that? And when she said the OB answered him and said, well, because everybody does it. This guy's, you know, <laughs> nonconforming. That was enough for him. Yeah. So I ended up meeting him through Maryland. He ended up giving us seed money to start Intact America. And that was in 2008. So for the last nearly 15 years, I've been running as the founding executive director. I've been running this organization called Intact America and using everything I've learned my entire life, which is such a privilege, right? Yeah. 
yeah. if you reach a certain age to be able to look back and see the trajectory. And I, I sense that from the work you do that, and from what I've read about you, that you also have incorporated every experience and every place and probably every patient and colleague into your philosophy and your body of work. And it's really, I feel incredibly lucky to have had the exposures that I've had over the years to these sure. issues. Well, as an OBGYN, and in the previous recording I did with Brendan, I talked about what the procedure looks like. Because as an OBGYN, as a resident, it was a requirement. You do so many circumcisions every Friday or whatever. During these particular 12 weeks, you're in there. You maybe do two to three in the morning, and then you go about your day. You go to surgery, and you don't put much thought into it. And as a resident, because you're sleep-deprived, you're kind of held to the fire, so to speak, as to what you need to do to give it granted permission Right. To call right, yourself to an OBGYN. Yeah. Right, so right, right. a lot of OBGYNs don't think about it. And through cognitive dissonance, not only do they do circumcision, but they do all these other interventions in childbirth that probably deep down they realize is not necessary to stick your hand in someone's vagina in the middle of the night to see what their cervical dilation is. I mean, right, right, right. so that alone, you know, not to mention all the C-sections and unnecessary surgeries and the synthetic hormone disruptors that we give or synthetic endocrine disruptors like birth control and all of that. I started asking all those questions early on, but circumcision was one of those fires. It was like, with all these fires, that's a fire that's going to have to sit on the back burner. And now that I'm a parent of two little girls, my wife and I have had some pretty extensive conversations around whether or not we would do it. And I kind of came to the same conclusion. was like, I guess we'll do it because I'm circumcised. And of course, now fast forward, we have two children and there's no way in hell I would have done that to my son. But it's because I feel like I've been grappling with these other fires. I have those sort of down to embers, so to speak, in my spheres. Mm -hmm. People that come to me are those who oftentimes maybe even want a free birth. They don't even want to have a hospital birth, let alone a home birth attended by a midwife. So there's this pendulum that's swinging. And I think that the same is happening for circumcision. But given my experiences in OBGYN, I can reflect on what some of these other OBGYNs were saying. And before we started recording, you said that in your advocacy work, Several OBGYNs have given you some pretty harsh criticism and also some, some maybe close allyship. Can you talk a little bit about those interactions you've had? Right. Well, I think you really hit the nail on the head when you said that your training was, I'm going to use the word you didn't use, desensitizing, right? That, Dehumanizing is actually the word I would use. I would take it there further. There you go, right. So it's something that you do things that you don't do that much thinking about unless you maybe have some jarring experience. But people who have become opponents of what we do to newborn babies, which is often in the past till recently with no anesthesia and still with absolutely inadequate pain relief, take a little tiny baby and apply a clamp to the most sensitive part of his body. And anyone who tells you baby doesn't feel pain is just ridiculously in denial. Every mother knows that their infant can feel pain. You know, it's not licensed to stick a needle or a knife into somebody because they might not feel it. Right. So this, what we do, we, we tie down a newborn baby who should be in his mother's arms or be swaddled and taken. We we strip that baby naked and put that baby on a hard, cold plastic mold, essentially, that immobilizes him with restraining straps like you would use to immobilize a criminal, and then proceed to slice, clamp and slice off the most sensitive part of his body. 
And then we tell ourselves that it really doesn't matter. It's really insignificant. Foreskin is insignificant, which I always say, if it's so insignificant, why the obsession with cutting it off? And then we deny that this has any consequences for not just the child, you know, not just the mother who just lost those bonding moments with her child, but for the person who actually has to repress the knowledge that they are slicing off and permanently removing a healthy body part from a newborn child who cannot consent, who is vocally not consenting, vocally protesting, right? So when you think this through and, you know, I have to tone it down in my daily life, this is something we do to a person who has just come into the world that has consequences for everybody in that child's constellation has consequences for the child and everybody, including the person who severed that child's foreskin and threw it in the trash or gave it to some medical biotech company, right? Yeah. yeah. So I just think that it's, I don't even remember what question you asked me, Nathan. That's how I view this process. And I think the implications of it in our culture cannot be overstated. That's right. I also don't believe it's just a man's issue. So you mentioned you're circumcised, so you thought you would circumcise your son. Well, you know, people say, well, a boy should look like his father. Well, what do you do with your child who has a different color eyes? <laughs> what do you do with a child who doesn't have your curly hair or, you know, your wife's your lips? Met- your metabolism, your- the shape of your body. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's the most absurd thing you could possibly say. There are a hundred other body parts that are more in evidence And no baby's genitals look like his or her mother's or father's genitals. For one thing, there's no hair. The size is different. I mean, it's an absurd statement. I agree. So I guess I just repeat that I don't think that when I see somebody like you who identify yourself as a holistic practitioner, I think if we take that approach, there's simply no argument that Cutting a body part, a healthy, normal body part off of a child is an okay thing to do. It's simply yeah. not. Yeah. There should be no doubt. Yeah. So my other specialty is end-of-life care. And mm-hmm. Dame Cecily Saunders of the UK, she was the foundress of the modern hospice movement. She used a term total pain, which is really what gave way to how we communicate with, let's say, somebody who's faced with their mortality way before they wanted to. Let's say they get diagnosed with prostate cancer or something at age 60, lung cancer, heart failure, whatever. They are now looking down that tunnel and realizing the end of the tunnel is coming way sooner. So that in and of itself causes pain. And she used a term called total pain. There's psychological pain. There's emotional Uh pain. There's even existential pain related to the question of what's going to happen to me after I pass through this portal at the end of my life on earth. And I think even as we consider how maternity care and how I'm trying to change maternity care in the United States, we have to consider the entire experience. In other words, just because you didn't feel pain during your C-section, does that make it any less traumatic to be strapped down, to have people operating on you through the lens of anesthesia, meaning not that you're not necessarily feeling pain, but you can't even feel your body. It's a dissociative practice. Well, some of that has come up in the movement against being examined while under anesthesia in academic medical centers where any number of 
medical students or residents can put their hands inside, and this is particularly women protesting this, put their hands inside your body, inside your vagina and feel your internal organs. And women weren't even told that they were being subjected to these exams and they don't remember it, but it's a violation. Their body might the remember fact, it. Their, their body, body might, might remember, remember it. it. I yeah. should, you're right. Correct. Yeah. Consciously, they might not have a recollection, but when they find out afterwards, I mean, it's a revolting, life-changing revelation, Yeah. right? Yeah. And there's a history of abuse in modern medicine, abuse like that. And usually the people getting abused are the powerless. It's low-income people in urban hospitals that are used as teaching hospitals. It's babies, right? Baby boys in this case. So there's a backlash against these things, but I think circumcision is a little late to the game. And it's because there's so much denial about the absolute fact that it's not necessary, that it's it's an assembly line medical price, part of assembly line American medicine. And we should say right now that this is something that no other country, period, does as a routine medical procedure the way the U.S. does. Right. The other English-speaking countries did it for a while, and they gave it up when they realized that it, it was medically unnecessary and costly to the system. And then South Korea learned it from the Philippines to some extent because they were taught by U.S. doctors. So South Korea has a fairly high medical circumcision rate. But in the rest of the world, circumcision is among Muslims and among Jews considered a ritual practice or a cultural mandate. But throughout Europe, Latin America, there's no routine circumcision right. with baby boys. Right. And they're all, they're fine, right? If you listen to the dying of penile cancer and HIV right. and STDs, urinary as we tract were infections, <laughs> right? Exactly. It's so ridiculous. I mean, they should be dropping like flies, you know, in France from urinary tract infections. And we actually have our health status is way below those countries. So there's no question that circumcision, even if you don't want to say that it harms health, which of course I believe it does. I think we have lots of evidence that it does. Certainly doesn't help anybody. Yeah. It absolutely doesn't help. Doesn't make our boys and our men healthier. Yeah. So the previous question I'd asked that I'm glad that we captured that piece of this conversation. The question I'd asked, which I think is very relevant, is as you've been advocating for this, you've received quite a bit of kudos from people like me, and you've received a lot of criticism from people like me, especially I'm talking about OBGYNs here. Can you talk a little bit about some of those interactions? Because I think it does reflect just how normalized this practice has become, that this has become so confronting to your typical, very smart, highly educated, blah, 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 OBGYN. Why are you receiving such pushback? I mean, what is the deal here? Well, I think that when you do something that is clearly unjustified, the only way you can keep doing it is by denying that it's harmful. So a lot of the pushback I get from physicians is basically saying, it used to be how it, circumcision was a good thing. People don't even bother saying that anymore. They say the parents demand it. The parents want it. So all of a sudden, you're like the cereal companies that say kids like sweetened cereals. You know, they like Captain Crunch or they like, so we're going to give it to them as healthy food. Fortify with folate and all this other crap, right, right, synthetic right. vitamins and nutrients. Yeah, yeah. So I have to tell you, I respectfully will disagree with somebody who tells me these things, but I don't 
respect their reasoning because it's vacuous. It's just wrong. And it's unserious. You know, you can't dignify some of the justifications. I had an OB write to me recently saying that I unfairly maligned OBGYNs who do so much good in the world. And believe me, she said, she actually used this language. She said, OBGYNs I know hate doing circumcisions. They're a terrible pain in the ass for us. And they just disrupt our day. And I can assure you, we don't do it to make money. And so I read this, it's like, well, just stop, right? Just stop. Just, <laughs> just say, don't cut off the baby's just penis. Just don't do it. Right, skin. right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's pretty easy. <laughs> how do I answer? So, oh, I say, oh, now I understand. You know, you hate doing it. Oh, you I'm poor sorry, doctor. You to, I wish there was yeah, a way to stop it. <laughs> right. I'm sorry you have to do I mean, it's the easiest thing in the world. But it is, it should be the easiest thing in the world to stop. But it is so embedded in our so-called healthcare system, in our medical system, and our assembly line medicine, that selling circumcision starts before a mom is even pregnant. Right. 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 I mean, the culture, you read on some baby magazine, the most important decision you're going to make when you find out you're pregnant, is if you're going to circumcise your son. Now, if you talk to somebody from a non-circumcising country, nobody says, you know, you're going to have to make this very important decision. It just doesn't even come up. That's a good point. Right? So women are pre-programmed. And then throughout the pregnancy, at the ultrasound, now there's a routine ultrasound at, what is it usually... 15, 16 weeks or something. It's I don't know. Level two, where you identify the sex is around 18 to 20 weeks. Okay. Generally. Yeah. Now, I don't work in a hospital. I've talked to several people who've said that it's part of the record that a male child, the mother is asked if she plans to circumcise. Now, mm-hmm. that's a fetus, you know, yeah. and we're already talking about when that fetus comes out of the mother's womb, what part of the body are you going to cut off? And don't tell me, Now, I suppose you don't want to cut the umbilical cord either. Well, that's just a ridiculous thing to say. The umbilical cord has to be cut for the child to become an independent functioning human being. Nobody walks around with the placenta dragging, you know, behind their feet for 70 years. But the foreskin is yours. It's yours. Doesn't belong to anybody else to cut off. And here the mother is pre-programmed. Then she gets to the hospital. It's often asked as part of the intake process. And then she's very often asked in the delivery room. And it's not like, oh, have you thought about whether you're going to circumcise your baby? It's what I hear is you're going to circumcise him, right? The doctor's (laughs) going to be by in the morning. So Intact America, which is the organization that I run, I think we haven't said that yet, but I'm the executive director of Intact America, which is a not-for-profit organization that wants to change the way America thinks about circumcision. And Intact America has been doing surveys recently. And we found that The average nationwide survey, we go through Qualtrics, the average number of times women are asked if they want to circumcise their baby is eight, eight times. Many are asked as many as 12 times. That's how many times they're asked before the baby is born? No, up to the time of the birth. Eight times. So people say, well, you know, we're just asking. We're not trying to sell it. Well, that's like in McDonald's, you know, I know nothing against McDonald's. I have everything against McDonald's. Fuck McDonald's. Yeah, okay, right? <laughs> Would you like fries with that? It's like, are you sure you don't want fries? You want to supersize that up? I mean, this is called selling. Are you sure? 
Yeah, are you sure? Well, what you if know? we sweeten the deal? We'll give you a BOGO if you double your fry size or whatever. Biggie size it. <laughs> so that's how circumcision is sold. Yeah. It is unethical. You're not allowed to solicit. The AMA ethical guidelines say you're not allowed to solicit unnecessary medical practices, not to mention that parental consent for a medically unnecessary permanently altering procedure is not adequate. You have to wait until that person becomes of an age to give the person who's going to live with the consequences to give them enough information that they can make informed consent. And no infant can do that. That's right. We have invented a special category for parental proxy consent in allowing a parent to sign off on a child's circumcision. That is not a therapeutic procedure any more than a tattoo is. A tattoo is criminalized. Anyone who would do a tattoo and the parent can be also prosecuted for allowing a tattoo on any child under the age of 18. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, you're not allowed to let your neighbor come in and feel up your daughter just because the mother says, oh yeah, it's okay, sure, no problem. This is an assault on the child that no parent has the right in medicine or law to consent to, except we've carved out this exception for this benign sounding procedure called circumcision. Now, nobody who's really paying attention can justify that surgery as being benign. You're slicing off the most sensitive part of your child's body. So this is something that's sold all along. The impact is minimized. We've surveyed people who were told that it was medically necessary. We've surveyed people who were told that it's required by the hospital. We've heard from people who said that they were asked to sign a disclaimer that there was two sides of a consent sheet and you had to acknowledge that you refused a circumcision. I mean, every variation. And I can't tell you how shocked I was when all of these things started, you know, coming to me because my own experience when my son was born, and I thank everybody in my orbit for this, including a European obstetrician who was in retrospect not was from a country that did not do circumcisions and nobody pressured me. I didn't have to fight off anybody. I mean, I think I would have been able to fight them off. Sure. But nobody pressured me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. My son had pediatricians growing up who never remarked on the fact that he was intact. They were just treated him like he was normal, which of course he was. But I've heard probably 90%, 95% of the people I've spoken to over the last 30 years about this were subjected to some kind of pressure. Which I would say is coercion in, in a lot of ways. You it's know? absolutely coercion. Yeah, yep. yeah. To say, oh, we just asked. We didn't tell right. them. That, again, you know, you want fries with that, right? Yeah. Georgian, let's take a break here and I'm going to stoke the fire. You can answer your text messages and we'll come right back. Okay. Very good. When my wife and I got pregnant with our first Penelope Luce, we didn't get pregnant right away. It took us several months dialing in lifestyle, dialing in sleep, um, tracking fertility awareness like cervical mucus, etc. And then suddenly when we had the figures right, bam, she revealed it to me and I was so ecstatic. It was exaltation. What a burden off my shoulders. We got pregnant. And it was that moment 
where I really became dedicated to trying to help couples achieve that same experience of exaltation. The problem was that my training as an OBGYN left me with synthetic hormones, a lot of imaging and other procedures without really the toolkit to look upstream for the reasons for which these fertility challenges are presenting in the first place. So from my time in residency, I've explored a lot of other modalities, and I've come up with a really, really clever strategy, which starts with a bunch of functional medicine testing, liver detox, working with the second chakra, working in through the yin as opposed to this excess yang that we've all been incentivized to utilize. I've read a number of books and done quite a bit of studying in other areas. And what it has led me to is this special offering that is exclusive to Beloved Holistics. And it's a truly holistic approach to fertility. It's my Patience, Reverence, and Presence Fertility Program. That's PRP. And it starts exactly as I described. But you don't just meet with me. You meet with a breath worker. You meet with an NLP embodiment coach. You meet with a metaphysical counselor and check practitioner. You meet with a functional nutritionist and licensed acupuncturist. You meet with a Chinese medicine and German new medicine practitioner. You're going to meet with a psychic medium. You're going to go through art therapy, qigong, tai chi. You're going to learn some foundational movement patterns. You're going to become more flexible. You're going to become stronger. You're going to become detoxified. You're going to become well-nourished. We're going to go through diet, movement, sleep, breath, mindset, hydration. We're going to dial all of that in. And with the purchase of your PRP program, not only do you get all these books and supplements and vitamins and the detox and the Dutch testing and all of this, a meeting with other practitioners, you also get access to my new natural fertility course. It's an online self-guided course at the Czech Institute. And you're going to get a vaginal steaming consultation with vaginal steaming herbs. This is really, really the whole package that will help you either conceive naturally, or if you do end up going the route of IVF, we're going to get you as healthy as possible so that that twelve dollars to $15,000 investment is worthwhile and you get a baby out of the deal. Otherwise, you may find yourself going back for a second or a third round, or if you do get pregnant with IVF, we know that that's an independent risk factor for a lot of pregnancy complications unless you dial in your health and we look upstream to figure out what was the cause of these fertility challenges in the first place. So if you want to find out more information about the PRP Fertility Program at Beloved Holistics, go to belovedholistics.com slash PRP. You'll find a wealth of information there. If you have any doubts or need more information, need answers for your questions, you can always book a free discovery call also on the website. All right, let's get back to this incredible conversation. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. Georgian, a lot of my colleagues, and I think the parents that are being counseled by them, in some ways, I guess I could say, oh, it's not your fault. It's normalized by our culture. But just like with childbirth, if something's confronting to you about, let's say, a birth intervention, that's obviously the great body of a great deal of my work is really right. confronting this notion that we need to intervene at every step of the way in childbirth. Well, the line that I've come to that I use on a daily basis is the burden of evidence lies to those who wish to deviate from nature. And we don't have a lot of evidence here about this circumcision thing. In fact, these little quips that we provide in our 15 seconds of counseling, and you as a JD, you know, and you've talked a lot about autonomy and justice, in order for us to honor the principles of bioethics, we have to provide information for a person to make an informed decision. Well, the information we're providing is crap at very best with regards to a decreased lifetime risk of 
UTIs, penile cancer, HIV. We can go into the studies if people would prefer. I did do this a little bit with Brendan, but I'm curious as to how confronting is it to you in your advocacy work when we don't even have evidence to support the practice? And when these doctors are pushing back, what evidence are they really hoping that we see that suggests or demonstrates without a shadow of a doubt that this is a good thing to be doing without even considering a variety of other factors you know, that we mentioned before, the mental, emotional, and perhaps even spiritual aspects of strapping a little boy down, teaching him that, hey, as long as I'm bigger and stronger than you, I can do whatever I want to your body. Let's talk about the evidence. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because in the years I've been doing this work, I have seen these supposed evidence-based arguments kind of fall away. Mm. And in the last perhaps five years, and some of us, my colleagues and I have talked about this, people aren't even bothering telling you that it's medically beneficial. The argument has gone almost entirely to the cultural argument, look like the father, or it's our culture, or the mythical locker room where your son's going to be made fun of. I don't think most doctors believe that cutting off a baby's foreskin has any medical benefits at all. They're not seeing intact children dying from urinary tract infections. They're seeing complications, right? I mean, the American Academy of Pediatrics made a statement a few years ago that the rate of complications is particularly low and they are ignoring case reports of deaths because those are just case reports, but they really can't quantify the risks because they've never been systematically studied. Well, how can you recommend a procedure when the risks and complications have never been systematically studied? (laughs) That's exactly right. And I'm not making this up. I mean, I'm not paraphrasing. That's a statement in a 2012 report from the American Academy of Pediatrics that the risks have never been systematically studied. So you have live epidemiology, you have real on-the-ground epidemiological evidence that circumcision does not improve health. You have the entire European continent, which does not conduct routine circumcisions. You have better health status in those populations. You don't have men and boys, you know, dying at higher rates of Those countries have lower rates of HIV than the U.S. and other sexually transmitted diseases because they do a better job at sex education. There's nothing about urinary tract infections. It's not a reportable disease, but it's not a health problem in these countries. And penile cancer, men have a one in 100,000 chance, lifetime chance of developing penile cancer, where women have a one in eight chance, American women, of developing breast cancer. And that could be completely wiped out, the latter, by removing the breast buds and not allowing girls' breasts to develop, and nobody's advocating That's for that. Great, so, great point. Really, most of what I hear is just an argument for perpetuating the status quo. My colleague, Dan Bollinger, who's the vice chair of the board of Intact America, again, my organization, intactamerica.org, said, keep your son intact and your grandson will look like his dad. In other words, break the cycle, <laughs> right? I'm 70 and my parents' generation, virtually none of the men, most of our fathers at this age have passed on. My stepfather is the man who raised me. And people born before the 1940s, men born before the 1940s are generally not cut. Certainly mid-30s was kind of when it started to become more popular. And so our entire world history 
except if we're Muslim or Jewish, is intact men. And the status quo is what's driving this. And then the medicalization of everything we do, which is what you so eloquently bring to light in your work, the over-medicalization and the assembly line sort of putting people into a sausage-making machine, you know, where they're pushed and prodded out the other end. (laughs) Yeah, right. You know, it's absolutely mindless. It's absolutely disdainful of the child's rights. If you're going to cut off someone's body part, you better be able to, to show that in the absence of cutting off that body part, that person is going to be sick, right? Yeah. That's a pretty dramatic intervention to cut off part a healthy part of somebody's body. If I started saying, you know what? The little toe is going to go by the wayside one day. Somebody said, you know, 400,000 years, people won't have little toes anymore. So why don't we just cut off the little toe now? You would have to prove that the little toe has some kind of medical benefit, right? And you would have to say that intervention is fairly extreme. So the consequences of having the middle toe have to be even more extremely negative. And that's never been done with the foreskin, right? You're strapping down a child, performing a painful procedure that permanently removes functional tissue. We haven't even talked about the function of the foreskin. Maybe we could spend a second on that. Yeah, we'll do that next. And you need to be able to show that that is a therapeutic procedure that improves the life or health of the child so dramatically that you can forego rules about informed consent. You can forego the fact that pain management is inadequate. You can dismiss the fact of complications. You can say the complications are far less drastic than making that child live with his intact foreskin. You know, what's a little bleeding? What's 100 deaths a year? What's the risk of losing the head of the penis, the glance penis that can get severed? Well, you know, I once asked a pediatric urologist, well, what do you say, who was kind of minimizing the impact of circumcision? And I said, what do you say to parents who have a child that was terribly maimed in a circumcision procedure? And he said, I say, bring him to me and I'll fix it. And I said, thanks, doc. (laughs) What do you say to the child who you can't fix? And he just said, well, you know, there aren't that many of those. But what if it's you or your baby? Yeah. You know, sort of summarizing everything that you just said, which is really the crux of this. It's really what I was getting into with the sort of informed consent piece. The burden of evidence lies to those who wish to deviate from nature is that not only we over-medicalized everything from childbirth to even death and dying, but circumcision certainly falls in here. We've not just over-medicalized it. We've over-pathologized these things. Right. Yes. The foreskin is a pathological thing. Exactly. We've provided the illusion that there's a disease here. And I don't know if it's something I heard through intactamerica.org's work, you know, through your advocacy, or if it was somewhere else, but circumcision seems to be a cure searching for a disease. So we need to really come up with a disease. And, And the same goes for childbirth. You don't want your baby to die, do you? Well, how do you answer that question? Right, right. right. Uh, No, I don't want my baby to die. Well, then you better do what we're suggesting, which is to have an unnecessary C-section. Or you better let me do a vaginal exam, which is neither fully consented because it was consented under duress, or it's just me putting your hand somewhere it doesn't belong without really being able to glean all that much information anyways. I think circumcision falls into this over-pathologized, or foreskin, we can say, has been pathologized in our culture. 
in order to provide some justification for doing this surgery. It's not a procedure. This is a surgery. That's the other thing. Yes. Let's call it what it is. This is not a clipping of your toenails. This is a surgery requiring sterile instruments, requiring sharp needles to inject nerve blocking agents into the penile nerve so that you don't get any sensation there. So I think this is very, very helpful. And since we're talking about sensation and since you brought it up, why don't we go into that? What is the benefit of foreskin? I mean, it makes great lotion. Why not just keep doing that? Because boys seem to do great without their foreskin. I think that's so fascinating, right? It's so valuable as a cosmetic because of its incredible properties, really unparalleled by any other part of the body. It should tell us enough right there, right? <laughs> it's so worthless that we're going to cut it off and deprive the owner of it, right? Crazy, So yeah. the foreskin is a double-layered extension of the tissue of the skin on the penis, but it's a very different type of skin because it has an outer layer and an inner mucosal layer. And there's a ridge in between those two things. So during intromission or during masturbation or intercourse and the foreskin is retracted, the inner part of the foreskin, which is extremely sensitive, is exposed to either the partner's vagina, if the partner's a woman, or to the friction of self-pleasuring masturbation, you know, whatever turns the, the owner of the foreskin on. And the head of the penis, which is meant to be an internal organ, right? It's like the inside of your nose. It's like the inside of your mouth. Imagine if you remove someone's lips and cut the frenulum that keeps the lips in place. And all of a sudden, their lower part of their mouth just hung open and exposed the inside of the mouth. The tongue would dry out. Eventually, you wouldn't be able to taste your food. You wouldn't be able to even digest your food appropriately because your saliva would be dried up. So removing the foreskin from a male permanently exposes the glands penis, which is the head of the penis, to the elements, to the air, to underwear, to rations, to the bedclothes. And over time, the head of the penis becomes desensitized. So you've desensitized the penis in two different ways. You've desensitized it by exposing the glands to the elements and turn that internal organ into an external organ. Uh, probably a oh, better so analogy, more understandable, because no one can even imagine living without lips and a tongue, would be removing fingernail and then completely removing it. And then you know, you would have this exquisitely painful nail bed, but over time it would callous over and you would lose a sensation in it. And that's what happens to the head wow. of the penis of a circumcised man. So I really man. am missing now, out then. It happens gradually. Unfortunately, when people say to me, am I missing something? I say, yeah, you Probably. are. You are yeah. literally missing something. So again, using the fingernail analogy, you're missing your fingernail. If you have your fingernail ripped out, does it mean you can't pick things up off the floor? Does it mean you can't have a nice dinner or a nice life? Does it mean this is something that's necessarily going to obsess you for 24 hours a day? No, not necessarily, but you're missing your fingernail. And that has consequences for your finger. Yeah, Missing your foreskin has consequences for your penis and also for your psyche. We don't understand that well enough. But I have heard from, probably at this point, thousands of men about the consequences to them of having this done to them as a baby and living without their foreskin. And what I hear at the most basic benign 
bit of information is I can't feel what I used to feel. I don't have the kind of sensation in my penis that I used to have. Oh, meaning, wait, can I clarify that? I've never had any sensation. So sorry for cutting you off. I kind of got excited here. What people often say is, well, you're not going to know the difference anyways, because it was cut off day one of life, your foreskin. If I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is, you know, you start having sex, whatever, age 20, and then by age 40, it's actually less pleasurable because of the processes, the callousing and whatnot. No kidding. Interesting. And depending on the extent of the tissue that was removed and the technique of the practitioner, keep in mind that little tiny flap of skin that keep, you know, denigrating becomes a really big organ in in an adult. Right, right. So that little tiny flap of skin that was so insignificant, depending on the technique and the precision in which it's cut off, some men and boys never have proper sexual sensation. Others do. And, you know, lust and love goes a long way, right? But over time, there really appears to be no evidence, no that, how can I say it? It appears to be pretty much ubiquitous that sensitivity and sensation decline over time in the circumcised penis. And Intact America, as most of the intactivist movement, started out really focusing on babies. And that's still a huge focus, of course, because we want to protect babies. But our constituents, if you will, Intact America and 90-something percent of our donors are middle-aged and older men who are feeling the consequences of having that body part removed. And it's just irrefutable. And I have heard, like I said, hundreds at least of stories. My inbox is full of them from men who lament their inability to feel what they should be feeling during the sex act or during masturbation. And we should think really hard about that when we say, oh, it's nothing to do this to a baby or he'll be glad he looks like his dad. You know, think again. Yeah, I have a lot of it doesn't really serve me, but I have a lot of guilt about having done so many of these procedures as a resident. And, you know, while I was actively trying to fly under the radar, really, with regards to not doing the routine cervical exams and pushing back against surgeries and C-sections and birth control, like asking all those questions similar to you in your career, earlier in your career, having just pushed back, pushed the wrong buttons at the wrong time and people just wanting to flunk you out. And I was still getting the right answers on the test. So I couldn't really flunk out, but they were not happy with me. They didn't want to work with me. These are my attendings, the people that are going to give me the thumbs up or thumbs down, like you're in the Coliseum gladiatorial days. Of all the fires, as I mentioned, circumcision was not one that I didn't feel good about it, but it was one that was like, I'm not going to push back on this Didn't take a stand on that one, right? Yeah. And I lament how many little boys did I do that to in order to just make it through my day. And I feel somewhat resentful for the realities of this procedure having been obscured, you know, and I was a very open-minded, open-hearted, compassionate guy, which was part of the reason that I didn't fit well in the conventional medical system. And people know my story of having been fired a year ago because I took my mask down while caring for a 95-year-old dying man. Yes, COVID. Yes, masks. Yes, vaccines. Okay, fine. But this person is an individual, a single person who deserves a lot of dignity and compassion right now. And he didn't want me to wear masks. So I didn't. And I got fired the next day. So throughout my entire life, I've struggled with playing by the rules when the rules don't make sense to me. 
And I still, despite all of my advocacy work now, I still feel bad. Like those individual boys, those individual families are perhaps coping with a great deal of pain. And we're talking total pain here as a result of this prescribed way of managing little boys at day one of life when they weren't given truly informed consent. The assembly line removal of their body parts. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, you know, your voice is extremely powerful here. Just as in the early days of the movement or in, in my work, we use a lot of kind of intellectual arguments, you know, it's human rights violation. It's not medically necessary. Those things don't fire anybody up. But a man standing there and saying, I can't feel my penis anymore. I'm 42 years old and I can't feel my penis anymore. Wow. Who's going to argue with that? Right. You can't argue with that. And so a doctor who will say, I cut little baby boys and I did it because that was part of my training. But right now I have trouble sleeping or thinking about it or whatever. Nobody can argue with that. You yeah. know, and you as a doctor, you as my younger colleague need to hear me when I say that I regret having cut these boys. And if we could, everybody in this system is involved in perpetuating the promiscuous and unnecessary removal of baby boys' foreskins. So the hospitals, the doctors, the parents are victims in some way, but they will acquiesce. The sonographer who asks the question when it's a male fetus, the admission clerk who says you want him circumcised, right? We're all part of that system. And somebody's got to like raise their hand and say, stop this. We got to stop this. And each of us has our own unique perspective, right? I have my story about my son thanking me for keeping him intact. I argued about circumcision from an intellectual standpoint for years. I have people, since I tell that story about my son thanking me, I've had the most improbable people demographically burst into tears when, when I said that. One of my attorneys that I used when I ran this big HMO burst into tears when I told that story. I don't even know what made that story. That story still brings me to tears, yeah. but I've seen it bring grown men to their knees. Right. So your voice is extremely powerful on other issues also. And, you know, one of the things that happens with this issue is it's like, oh, my God, I'm already vilified. Everybody thinks I'm a kook. If I start talking about circumcision, they're really going to hate me. <laughs> and I've been through that. And it's like, well, sorry. People say, why are you so obsessed with circumcision? I said, well, you know, I'm not the one that's cutting off part of baby boy's penises. You know, I'm obsessed with the wrong that's being done. But why are you so obsessed with justifying the removal of a healthy body part? I don't feel bad for talking about it. You know, you're the one. That's, you know. <laughs> it's like that joke about, you know, I'm not the one who's lost. You know, somebody's driving through the country and asks a local, can you tell me how to get to such and such? And I said, I don't know. And, and um, the tourist says, what do you mean you don't know? How long have you lived here? I've lived here all my life. Well, how could you not know? And then the guy looks at the tourist. He says, I'm not the one that's lost. <laughs> you know? And that's really how I feel about this issue. You know, I'm a voice for 
just letting normal be normal and letting people have the bodies they were born with, not undermining a mother's instinct and not really, you know, feel, well, I don't want to tell the father, you know, because he's circumcised. So I'll let him say it's okay to circumcise his kid. <laughs> don't, don't insult a man like that. This guy can understand that you're not disrespecting him. You can say, look, you know, I understand, you know, you're ambivalent about this, but you might have liked to have the choice yourself. Just let your son alone. You can always, you can always decide later. Everybody can be respected here. And this procedure respects nobody. Doesn't respect the baby, doesn't respect the mom, doesn't respect the doctor, doesn't respect the nurses. If I didn't talk about briefly, there are lots of parents that are choosing to keep their children intact. That was ultimately the goal of the intactivist movement, to protect baby boys. Unfortunately, because we live in a circumcising culture and doctors are unfamiliar with, if not uncomfortable, about the male foreskin, there's a new risk out there, which is forcible foreskin retraction. So parents who fought really hard to keep their kids intact, they'll take, you know, mom will take the baby to the emergency room for vomiting or diarrhea. And the doctor will spot that intact penis and grab it and forcibly tear back the foreskin oh called forcible foreskin retraction and say that if the mother doesn't do that and regularly retract her son's foreskin, he's going to have to be circumcised later because he's going to get infections. Nothing could be more false. The baby is born with a foreskin that is attached to the head of the penis. It separates over time, sometimes not till the child is a teenager. Uh, that intact children are subjected to. So I have to say that intactamerica.org, we talk about forcible foreskin retraction. We also have another site, kind of an entry-level site for people who can't take our level of revelation called the circumcisiondebate.org. We have pages on Facebook and also Instagram. We're on Twitter, at least for now. <laughs> we'll see how long that takes. <laughs> right. So lots and lots and lots of information. Yeah. If you have anybody tell you circumcision is medically beneficial, just, you know, tell them they're full of it, move on. I think that's a great way to wrap up the conversation, George. And I also will also plug Brendan Murata's work, the Intactivist Handbook. And his film, American Circumcision. American Circumcision. Excellent. There right. was another film as well. Was it called The Elephant in the Room? Or Yeah, that's a more of an academic presentation, right. And then there's a film made by two midwives from Minnesota called The Circumcision Movie, which is also... Really nice. You can great. buy it online, I think. Okay, great. There's a couple other titles that you mentioned. Can you recall the, the names of those books? Sure. Yes, we were talking before the show. And for people who want to know kind of a popular history of circumcision, if that's not a contradiction in terms, there's a journalist <laughs> named David Gallaher, G-O-L-L-A-H-E-R, and it's called Circumcision, A History of the World's Most Controversial Surgery. And it is a very informative, very readable history of circumcision. And because it's 20 years old, it does not go into the way the intactivist movement has changed in the last 20 years, but it's still a wonderful history. There's also a urologist named Adrian Carmack, C-A-R-M-A-C-K. She has a book, which would be right, you'd love it, um, Nathan, called Reclaiming My Birthright. She talks Amazing. about when she was pregnant, you know, deciding to have her baby her way. And she also has a book called The Good Mommy's Guide to Her Little Boy's Penis. And she talks about, and she's obviously opposed to uh, circumcising healthy children. Healthy children, yeah. 
So Adrian Carmack, C-A-R-M-A-C-K. And those are available, I'm pretty sure, on Amazon, both of those books. I was going to say, do you want to briefly mention your book as well that's going to be coming out in the future? Yeah, thank you. So I have a memoir coming out next fall, as does Marilyn Milos, who's the founder of the movement. We started writing our memoirs around the same time. And hers is called Please Don't Cut the Baby. And mine is called This Penis Business. And that (laughs) came from a conversation I had with a very old friend who was an anthropologist who asked me one day, genuinely curious, she was from Virginia, how did you get into this penis business? And I thought it was so, had every element of the meaning of a business. So yeah, they'll be out in the fall. Lucid House Publishing is the company that's going to be putting them out. So unfortunately, we're about a year away, but we'll be doing promotion of that. And as I threatened you, I'm going to send you a pre-publication copy so you can give me a Rave review, oh, Nathan. Cool. If you're going to twist my arm, Georgianne, fine. Right. I'll read a book that's going to be awesome for educating my clients and couples. So thank you. There was one final thing that just came to mind that I'll close with. And you mentioned this penis business. I remember when I was finishing residency, before I went to fellowship at UCSD for hospice and palliative care, I got a job opportunity came into my awareness. And it was going to be an OBGYN position, but they didn't care about me doing birth and GYN surgery and all the stuff I trained to do. They were interested in circumcision. And I believe, if I don't recall correctly, it was somewhere like Brussels or somewhere in Western Europe where I don't know why, but they needed a doctor there to do circumcisions. And they were going to pay me some ungodly amount of money per circumcision. It would have been more money than I would have ever made in the United States as a full-fledged OBGYN. I don't remember exactly where it was, but, you know, we didn't really get into the profit motivations. I don't think it's necessarily only profit motivation, but I do know you can bill for this surgery. Again, it's surgery, not a procedure, and there is money to be made. And when there's money to be made, it's going to be very, very hard to change something that has been so ingrained and normalized within the United States culture. I just wanted to throw that in there as a last yeah, it's circumcision <laughs> a fee-for-service procedure. Yeah. Again, it's fascinating to me how most doctors will deny that money has anything to do with why they do it. And that might or might not be true. I'm sure in some cases, I've also been told, and a colleague of mine who is an OBGYN who refuses to circumcise told me the doctors have said to him, just line them up and I'll go chop, chop, chop. And think of all mm. the RVUs being the billable yeah. level Procedures revenue, under me, what is it? Right. Revenue. Relative value relative units. Relative value units. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So, you know, chop, chop, chop. Every one of those chops is depriving a baby boy of his normal body part. So, yeah, again, I think the profit motive is buried so deeply into the system that it's hard to even put your hands on it. But, of course, we live in a country where the medical system is the most voracious consumer of people's income, right? And circumcision is just one other thing that's particularly grievous because it's infant circumcision, 100% unnecessary and violative. Just quickly, I mentioned that it's the parents who want it. And I know you have a history at Kaiser um, and Permanente Medical Group. And I sat not too long ago, a few years ago with a group of pediatricians at Permanente Medical Center in Sacramento. And they all, except for one who refused to circumcise, they all defended circumcision on the grounds that it was the parents who wanted it. 
And if Kaiser stopped doing it, it would make them uncompetitive people, which I think is ridiculous because I don't <laughs> think people, I don't think people choose their insurance companies based yeah, talk on about whether the cart before the horse. Good Lord. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> but I mean, I was shocked because these are doctors who are supposed to be thinking about the whole idea about managed care that Kaiser was founded on was that it was, you know, to use resources where they're most needed and to not do things that are unnecessary so that necessary things can be done. And I was shocked to find this group of relatively young pediatricians who had absolutely no orientation that way and were just defending it as being something parents wanted. Yeah. You know, I would say things like, what about the baby? It's like, well, I said, who's your patient? You know, the mom or the baby? You know, there's really no. So anyway, just thought I'd mention that to you. You can take it, leave it in or take it out as you wish. Well, I've got to start seeing clients and patients today, but I think really to wrap it up, you just brought in the rest of our principles of bioethics. We've talked about justice, which is really a reflection of the distribution of healthcare, how we advertise healthcare, how we sort it out so that everybody has equal access. We've talked about autonomy, which really is the full range of what I do. It's providing risk benefits alternatives in a non-coercive way, supporting them in their decision, accepting their capacity to make an informed decision and allowing them to live autonomously. What we haven't mentioned, the other two of the four principles are beneficence and non-maleficence. And this is really where beneficence is. I am using my skill set, my intellect in order to provide, to boost a person's welfare and non-maleficence is to do good. good. Exactly. Non-maleficence is related to that old adage, do no harm. And I don't think circumcision, the way it's being done, fits any of those. So we could also argue that this is a grand violation of all four of our primary principles of bioethics. And the way to stop it, guys, and this isn't on our parents for not demanding it. We have to stop saying that shit. We have to actually... You have to say, I don't do that procedure. I don't do it because it's harmful to the baby. Bingo. That's it. It's us. It's on us. An Armenian physician from Southern California I, I talked to many years ago said to me, no, no, I tell my patients, I will not hurt your baby. I do not want to hurt your baby. I say, no, I won't do circumcision. I don't want to hurt your baby. And Jim Verese, OBGYN, who is a friend of mine and a supporter of Intact America, who did one circumcision during his residency and wrote a voices piece you can find on our he did one circumcision. He participated in one circumcision. He said, I have no doubt that we harmed that baby that day. And that's the do no harm, right? I have no doubt that we harmed that baby. And that baby is probably a man now, you know, in his 20s, living without his beneficial pleasure-providing, immune-protecting, penile-protecting, lubricating, heavily nerve-laden part of his body called the foreskin. That's right. And that man is living without that as a consequence of a relatively mindless action that inflicted harm on him when he was, what, a day old? Yeah. Two days old? Well, thank you, Georgianne. This has been a very rich, as I expected, very rich conversation. We're going to link everything up, make sure people know about your advocacy work, make sure that when your book is ready, we promote the heck out of that as well. And I'll come back on if you would like. Yeah. Yeah. We can always do a follow-up. Absolutely. I thank you so much for being so gracious with your time. And well, I thank you for taking up this topic, Nathan. I think it's extremely important. I think your voice is super powerful and I really feel very grateful to have been on your show. 
know, it's been a real pleasure, Georgian. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you haven't checked out my website, go to BelovedHolistics.com. Nothing on the show is medical advice, but you certainly can get some help, whether you're a person looking for a birth worker or a holistic gynecologist, or if you're a midwife or other type of birth worker or healthcare professional that wants to have me in your corner. You can find all of that there. You can also find information about my new PRP fertility program. That's all available at BelovedHolistics.com. If anything in this show touched you in some way, if you went back and re-listened to something, share this episode. Give the gift of the Holistic of a Joanne podcast to the people in your life, to your clients, to your family, your friends, your colleagues. Let's get these messages out there. This conversation, like every conversation, I only do it because I think it's important for the community. You can also go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Give me a five-star review. Believe it or not, it really matters. And then lastly, support our sponsors. The sponsors make it possible to put out this high-quality content. And as I'm increasing my audio and my video and my different platforms and rebranding and rebuilding, that costs money. My sponsors enable that to happen. I also have an online shop with not only the sponsors discount codes listed, but a wide variety of other products that are going to make you and your family as healthy and vital as possible. Again, I'm Nathan Riley. Thank you so much for listening in to the Holistic OBGYN podcast. We'll see you next week.